Today's episode is sponsored by the American Chemistry Council. Chemistry creates, America competes. Hey, welcome to Politico Tech. It is Friday, October 27th. I'm your host, Stephen Overly. In the coming months, the Supreme Court is expected to rule on a case that could fundamentally change how the government communicates with social media companies. The lawsuit in question accuses the Biden administration of violating the First Amendment. It argues officials effectively coerced companies like Meta and X to remove posts related to COVID-19 and the 2020 election that were considered to be misinformation. Now, the politics at play here are pretty clear. This case was brought by Republican attorneys general from Missouri and Louisiana, and complaints about conservatives being censored online have run rampant for years. But Alex Abdo tells me the case has serious implications for online speech if you look beyond the politics. Alex is the litigation director at the Knight First Amendment Institute at Columbia University. The Institute calls itself a defender of free speech in the digital age, and has brought several legal challenges of its own in the past. Perhaps most famously, a lawsuit arguing former President Trump could not block his critics on Twitter. On the show today, Alex explains why this future Supreme Court ruling really matters. The case is really about the influence that the government is permitted to have over public conversations that take place on the social media platforms. Because the underlying constitutional principle is really a pretty straightforward one. The First Amendment prevents the government from censoring constitutionally protected speech And the Supreme Court has made clear that the government cannot do indirectly what it is not permitted from doing directly. And so the question is, if the government can't directly censor speech, what exactly is the line that it cannot cross in trying to convince or persuade or even coerce private parties into doing the censorship for them? So that's, you know, that's the key question that the case raises. And it's a really thorny one because this line between persuasion on the one hand, which the Supreme Court has told us is fine, and governmental coercion, on the other hand, which the court has said is not fine, violates the First Amendment, is a really challenging one to draw uh, because it's a spectrum, it turns out. It's It's not a clear line between two clearly identifiable things. It's a spectrum. I was going to ask you, you know, the lower court rulings in this case have kind of focused in really on this idea of coercion. The government cannot coerce companies. But I I guess I don't know that there's necessarily a legal definition for that. And it sounds like you're saying there there isn't exactly one. Is that right? That's right. You know, courts have tried to flesh the line out because, you know, this is not the first time that intermediaries for speech, the platforms in this context, but in an earlier era, booksellers. It's not the first time that these types of companies have argued that the government has unconstitutionally crossed that line. Uh, And so courts have tried to figure it out before. And what they focus on for the most part is looking for some kind of either explicit or even implicit threat of retaliation by the government. A threat of prosecution, for example, or a threat of regulation, or a threat maybe of withholding a lucrative government contract, something like that. The benefit of drawing the line there is that it gives you something clear to latch onto. It makes it easier for the government to know where the line is. It makes it easier for courts to look at what the government said and decide whether there was a threat there. The challenge, though, with 
drawing the line there is sometimes government threats are very subtle and don't take the form of an explicit do this or else, you know, or, and, and maybe, maybe there's no, you know, wink and a nod to see. Maybe it's something more subtle. And so that is also confounding things, making, you know, making the case more difficult. And add to that the fact that today's speech intermediaries, you know, the online platforms, the social media platforms are enormous companies that for the most part, uh, care very little about any one post on their platform or any one account on their platform. Um, and given that, you know, they can be surprisingly easy to convince or coerce, depending on your view, to take down speech, which makes the stakes higher for free speech online because there is essentially a small handful of companies that if the government wanted to effectively coerce into suppressing protected speech, you know, it could just focus on those small handful of companies. Um, right. So, you know, th- that's why the stakes are really high in the case and why the question is really hard. Well, it's fascinating, too, to me, uh, because the case kind of captures a lot of dynamics and the relationship between Washington and Silicon Valley. You know, on the one hand, I think it's been pretty well covered, the sort of adversarial nature of that relationship in recent years with antitrust investigations, you know, regulations, legislation proposals, et cetera. Um, but, it, but it also kind of reveals in ways that that relationship is quite cozy as well. You know, I mean, the reality is pretty much any political office in Washington, liberal or conservative, can can kind of more or less get a main line into these companies when they want to. That's right. And their staffers talk all the time with the policy people at these companies. They all have offices in Washington, D.C., and they are routinely taking meetings with legislative staffers. And, you know, the reality is that the relationships between large companies and the government are shaped by the regulatory environment. They're shaped by the fact that the companies rely very, very heavily on a a law called Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act that, for the most part— We talked about that a a few times here on the podcast. It's a a common uh, common topic. Yeah, you know, the brief description for those who haven't heard of it is that it, you know, provides an immunity from liability— for platforms based on the speech of their users. And that's a really important law for them because it allows them to host all sorts of speech without worrying about crushing liability. And they rely really heavily on that. Um, and it's understandable that they'd want to protect Section 230 against the poss- you know, possible repeals or efforts you know, to reform it. That makes the question of governmental coercion even harder because we tend to focus, you know, I'm a, I'm a litigator. I, I tend to focus on whether governmental efforts to suppress speech in a particular case reach the level of coercion. But with platforms as large as they are today and the relationships as persistent between platforms and government as they are today, whether we're seeing that kind of censorship may turn less on any particular episode and more on a kind of systemic relationship that the government has with platforms. And there's a real question as to whether law is up to the task of separating out the kind of relationship that we think is productive for government to have with platforms. And I think there's absolutely a really important role for government to play in regulating the digital public sphere from, you know, the part of the relationship that may trend into the subtly coercive. It's a, it's a really hard thing to disentangle. Well, so that I was going to ask you, is the issue here that this is not necessarily the government's place to be making these requests or determining what speech is or is not palatable on these platforms? You know, is that kind of the the government being the the entity here that is calling for this content to be removed? Is that really the crux of the problem? 
Well, this is kind of a first order question about what role you think the government should have. To my mind, the government has a really important role in helping to steer and shape public opinion when it comes to the threats that the government perceives there to be to the public. Um, you know, just give you a concrete example. And this is an example that came up in the context of the litigation that is now going up to the Supreme Court. President Biden at one point said, uh, I think he was focused on Facebook at the time, Facebook is killing people or the platforms are killing people. And he was referring specifically to the prevalence of uh, vaccine and public health disinformation during the pandemic on the platforms. Uh, to my mind, uh, it should be fine for the government to take that kind of position publicly to try to focus public opinion on a problem that, you know, that the government sees. The courts saw that statement and they saw, for the most part, coercion. We have, you know, we have two opinions now from a district court and an appeals court. And both of them were troubled by that statement that the platforms are killing people. They thought that that was an effort to unconstitutionally coerce the platforms into taking down protective speech, you know, which is why I said a minute ago, um, where you think the line is between these things may depend in large part on just what role you think the government should have in trying to shape public opinion. What are the consequences then if that communication is is limited or or shut off in some way between the government and these companies? Because I mean, uh, the reality is, you know, there there are concerns about widespread misinformation, disinformation on on these platforms, including topics that are just objectively false, like the 2020 election is stolen, right? Yeah. So what are the consequences then if this prevails and that communication is restricted in some way? Well, I think it does make it harder for the government to pursue policies that might, um, you know, benefit us all. And you know, it's easier to see if I give another example. So, you know, one of the other examples from the case is that there was a period in time where the CDC was responding to requests from the platforms about whether particular posts constituted disinformation. The CDC, it turns out, has a lot of public health experts. You know, they're one of the large repositories of public health expertise in our country. The platforms, it turns out, don't have a lot of public health experts, and they're not experts in vaccines, they're not experts in virology and the like. And there was a time when the platforms were asking the CDC what the CDC's view was on whether something was true or false. I think it's appropriate for the CDC to respond to those requests, to say, in our view, claiming that the vaccine causes these particular health effects is false or true. That seems to me a perfectly appropriate role of government, so long as the CDC does not then say, and if you disagree with us, we'll ask DOJ to prosecute you. So long as the CDC is, is essentially not trying to coerce the platform into adopting that view, if they're just providing their view on the public health realities that are killing tens of thousands of people, again, that to me seems perfectly appropriate. And I think it would be bad if the Supreme Court ended up clarifying the law in this area in a way that made those kinds of conversations off limits. We'll be right back. The Biden administration is moving forward with a slew of new regulations that put products like semiconductors, electric vehicles, modern healthcare technology, and clean energy at risk. Chemistry is essential to our modern lives, creating products to help foster a more sustainable and competitive future. The Biden administration must change its course and work with manufacturers on science-based policies that protect American innovation. Learn more at chemistrycreates.org. What other instance I'd be curious to get you to weigh in on, because I've seen it come up in the context of this lawsuit, 
these platforms receive a lot of requests for information from the government, um, particularly around law enforcement. Are there implications for, for that kind of information exchange in this lawsuit? There might be. You know, most of those requests, at least from the U.S. government, come through legal process that Congress has blessed. You know, typically when the government goes to the platforms and is asking, for example, for a user's emails in the context of some FBI investigation, typically that takes place uh, either pursuant to a warrant or some other kind of uh, court order or legal order that is provided for in a statute that Congress passed. Um, and there's a separate regime, you know, for those kinds of requests that sometimes entitle the user to notice. You know, I think one of the interesting proposals that has come out of the debate around jawboning government efforts to coerce is whether we should have a similar regime of notice, of public notice of what's going on to make sure at least that we know about government demands or government requests to the platforms to suppress information so that even if the courts have a hard time distinguishing coercion from persuasion, maybe the public at least will get a better sense of what's going on and there could be a form of political accountability if the public thinks the government has gone too far. And, you know, there's a an actual proposal by someone named Will Duffield at Cato, you know, that's a, a really interesting one in this vein. And I'd like to see, you know, more conversation around that possibility. Interesting. More transparency, I guess, around kind of this communication as a way to combat the potential coercion, it sounds like. Yeah, it'd be a prophylactic. It would be an acknowledgement that we're going to have a hard time drawing this line, especially given that these relationships are not episodic, they're long lasting. But maybe if we understand them a little bit better, uh, we'll be better equipped to push back against overreach when we see it. The issues that Louisiana and Missouri have highlighted in this case, the COVID-19, 2020 election, Hunter Biden's laptop, we have to be honest here. These are all conservative talking points, you know, in, in the political sphere. You know, in fact, in Louisiana, the, their attorney general, uh, Jeff Landry, just got promoted by voters to governor-elect earlier this month. I mean, realistically, is it possible to look at this case in a political vacuum? It's hard to look at it in a political vacuum if what you're focused on is figuring out whether this particular lawsuit has merit. Um, but let me tell you where I think there is probably more consensus. You know, if you are somebody who cares a lot about free speech, one thing you probably care about uh, is anytime there is centralized control over what can be said publicly. The First Amendment historically has been concerned uh, with the government, with centralized governmental power over what can be said publicly. But I think there's good reason to be concerned whenever there is centralized even private power over what can be said publicly. When you have a handful of people who decide, um, you know, what can be said and, you know, through the use of the recommendation algorithms, what will be heard. Uh, and I think the reality is that either political party, if they perceived that private power being used uh, to censor their viewpoints, to make it harder for them to win elections, I think either side um, you know, would complain. And I think that points to an important, you know, to my mind, ultimate source of the problem here. I don't think the real problem here is that the government expressed views about disinformation or that the government, you know, in some cases, you know, collaborated with the platforms. I think 
the problem to my mind is primarily that there is such centralized control over public discourse to begin with. What I would like to see is for these platforms to have less of a stranglehold on public discourse, for there to be more smaller platforms that offer users more choice and you know greater uh, control over their intellectual environments and uh, greater control over the decisions of what they see and why in the spaces where people form relationships, get their news, you know, experience the world. Because for better or worse, the digital public sphere is where many people live these days. It is, you know, very much an extension of, it's not something separate from, it's very much an extension of uh, the analog political world, the physical political world. And we want, I think we all have an interest in having a digital public sphere that serves democracy. And to my mind, having monopolistic or near monopolistic control over those spaces where the incentives of the companies in how they shape those spaces um, are almost exclusively their uh, economic interest, right? What's going to make them the most money? Uh, I think that's bad for democracy. And I'd like to see, you know, I, I would love for us to address that problem. That to me seems like the underlying one. The um, I can hear all of uh, pro antitrust Washington cheering, uh, <laughs> cheering as you make those comments. Um, well, listen. Last question for you. you know, the Supreme Court most recently has sort of swooped in in a six-three decision. You know, hit pause on a lower court ruling that would have inhibited communication between the Biden administration and these platforms. You know, what comes next here? The Supreme Court will hear the case this term and presumably issue a ruling by the end of June, which is when the term ends. And, you know, we may very well see some greater clarity um, in terms of what the government is allowed to do. I think it's very hard to predict how the Supreme Court is going to come out in this case. You know, we know from the decision to take the case that at least three justices uh, think that the administration went too far. But I'm not a, a betting guy, but I, I wouldn't place any, any significant amount of money on the outcome one way or the other in the case. Got it. Well, um, we'll continue to follow it and maybe uh, have you back when uh, when the Supreme Court makes its ruling. Uh, Alex, thanks for being here on Politico Tech. Thanks for having me. That's all for today's Politico Tech. For more tech news, subscribe to our newsletters, Digital Future Daily and Morning Tech. Music in today's episode comes from the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Our senior producer is Annie Reese. Our editors are Steve Heuser, Daniela Cheslow, and Louisa Savage. I'm Stephen Overly. I'll see you here on Monday.